Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. This is Sparta edition. On today's show, Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum team up for more bromance in the movie 22 Jump Street. And then, should poetry be more ingratiating to its potential fans, we discuss as a kind of test case the critical reception of the young and quite popular poet Patricia Lockwood. And finally, what makes a song the song of the summer? We discuss this with the critic Chris Melanthi, who covers the pop charts for Slate magazine. Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. I have to say, we are the three least Spartan people who ever lived. You think we're more Athenian? I mean, in our best iteration, we're Athenian. Basically, we're sickly people who would die off early in a warrior culture. But that said, we decided to call this the This is Sparta edition. Julia, why'd we do that? Because this is the 300. This is our 300th episode. I can't believe it's been that many. I can't believe we've sat down 300 times to do this show. Yeah, I don't think of it in terms of numbers of shows. I think of it as years worth of shows. So that number was truly shocking to me. But yeah, I guess the math makes it true. I think about it in terms of irradiations of ennui. (laughs) And how many of those have there been? It's sort of more of a per second measurement, Dana, but I think it's quite low right now. So I feel fresh. I feel like this is only number 296 or 97. (laughs) All right. Good to know, Steve. All right. Moving on. Julia, before we um, really dig in here, before we tuck in with our subjects, we have a announcement to make. Yeah, just a reminder that Slate Plus exists and is awesome. For five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, you can support Slate's journalism and get lots of podcast extras, including ad-free versions of our show with bonus segments. This week's bonus segment will feature an interview with our star and sadly outgoing intern, Anna Schechtman, who, in addition to her work for us, is also Will Shorts's assistant creating crossword puzzles for The New York Times and who managed to sneak a Slate podcast clue 
into the crossword last week. So we'll get the blow by blow of that uh, and hear a little bit more about her work as a cruciverbalist. All right. Thanks, Julia. That sounds great. Moving on. 22 Jump Street is an action comedy starring Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. It's filled with goofy, self-referential asides about its status as a sequel to a movie that itself was a reboot of a half-forgotten TV show. It is cheekily irrelevant, and just as predictably, it cleaned up over the weekend, pulling in something like 65% more at the B.O. than its predecessor. Is this all in good juvenile fun, or is there something else at work? First, let's listen to a clip. What up, fellas? We across the hall neighbors. Oh, the Yangs. Hey, what's up, man? With the Yangs, man. What's going on, man? Kenny Yang. What's up? Keith, hey, Keith Yang. Oh, you're twins. We're brothers, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not, he's not kidding. He's serious. Oh, really? You got, like, one of y'all older? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got crow's feet under your eyes, man. You specific. We're actually just normal college age. I mean, well, even if you're a little older, that's cool, man. Because, you know, girls here love older dudes. That's true. Plus, it's math girls here, man. I don't know. At the end of the day, you just kind of want something that's just a little deeper, really. Yeah, yeah deeper. Jeans buy me a coat. Oh, snap, man. We're still saying the same thing. This is amazing. Carrots, pumpernickels, glow sticks, twins. That's, so that's crazy. We have that brother... Connection too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You ready? Yep. Pirates, Paper clips. Baby bananas. Feet, I don't know. Anger, Words. Quicksand. Boom. Yeah. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's still making me laugh in the studio. A couple days after seeing the movie, we should explain a bit. So the plot of Twenty Two Jump Street is very self-consciously touted to be exactly the same as the plot of Twenty One Jump Street, except for that instead of infiltrating a drug ring at a high school, they're infiltrating a drug ring at a college. So um, in this scene, they're moving into their freshman dorm room and meeting their across-the-hall neighbors, some very in-sync comedic twins. Who were played by Keith and Kenny Lucas in, I think, a very scene-stealing, one of many scene-stealing small roles in this movie. Yeah, uh, very funny. Dana, your persnickety tribe, known as the critics, didn't seem too offended by this, nor too turned on by this movie. Where did you fall on the continuum? I mean, I, I think cheekily irrelevant is a great way to put it, as you as you put it in your setup. The, the people who made it, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, I mean, when it comes to animation, I feel like those guys are the one, <laughs> which is the very construct that was deconstructed in the Lego movie, which was the, their second animated movie. They've made two movies, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and the Lego movie, which to me are both animated triumphs, and then these two Jump Street movies, which are both sort of very good for what they are, very aware of their own silliness, and cannily exploiting the the talent of Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill as this comedy team. And I don't have a lot more to say about this movie than that, but it doesn't surprise me that it did run away with the box office, because it knows what it's doing within this limited and over-familiar genre. But this, this is so interesting. I mean, I did, you know, I, I looked a little bit into the uh, CVs of the creators of the movie, Julia, and uh, was surprised to find that they were associated with the two movies that Dana points out, Cloudy, with the chance of meatballs and the Lego movie. And I agree with her assessment of those movies. I like this way more than I thought I was going to. Um, what about you? I feel like you guys are totally whitewashing the conversation we had about the Lego movie. We were ambivalent about the Lego movie, weren't we? Or was that just me? I, aren't we bothered by their... Wait, I wasn't. I've been 100% championing the Lego movie since it came out. Maybe I've just projected my own ambivalence about the Lego movie onto you because I feel my ambivalence so deeply. But isn't there something... I mean, if these are the new comedy overlords of Hollywood, which they basically are, they've got this hugely successful live-action comedy franchise. And in both this movie and the Lego movie... They are trying to have it both ways. They want to make fun of the conventions of the genre that they're working in while totally exploiting those and laughing all the way to the bank in a way that feels very meta and modern and sort of asks you to short circuit your own critical 
faculties a little bit to enjoy the movies. I don't know. There's something fishy about it. I don't like it. I don't I don't like it. I mean, I love it. I laughed my ass off. I thought it was really funny. I would recommend that you go see it. But it feels sinister. I think there's something sinister that this movie and the Lego movie have in common. I think I want to pursue that line of thought because I can sense that gambit happening a little bit in these Jump Street movies. Although, I mean, as I said, I think that they are such sort of irrelevant summer fun that I can't get too upset about it. But I just don't feel that in the Lego movie at all. I feel like that movie wears its heart on its sleeve. In addition to, you know, having a very kind of meta and clever way of presenting its jokes, there's just there's a real sweetness and warmth and, and respect for childhood in that movie. And now I'm talking about the Lego movie and not the movie we're here to discuss. But. All right. Yeah, we don't need to rehash the Lego movie. Um, but for those of our listeners who haven't seen this movie, you know, just to give you a taste of it a little bit is very early on in the movie, the most you know, winking and self-referential scene is with a character, this deputy police chief, Hardy, who sits them down and tells them that their new mission is going to be exactly like the mission in the first film. And he does it in such a way that he's not talking about the mission. He's talking about the movie that they're in now, that it's going to be repetitive. It's going to be a total facsimile. He says it's always worse the second time around. He even uses the word reboot, which is your kind of variety insider critics way of talking about, you know, uh, creating a franchise uh, out of some old TV show. It's really self-referential. And and Julia, the funny thing is you used the sort of old man Heidegger word that I was going to use in my own intro, but then decided against, which was sinister. It seems playful, <laughs> but it also seems kind of a little, why is it sinister? There is something sinister, but I can't put my finger on what. I think one response I've had to this film, I mean, in this film has so many jokes about being a sequel. In some ways, the subject of this movie is being a sequel, right? It, it has a lot of, makes a lot of fun of it. It makes sport of it. And most of the jokes are quite funny. That monologue you described with Nick Offerman is very funny. There's also a lot of jokes about the budgets of sequels. Like they talk, the new Jump Street office is directly across the street from the old Jump Street office. And instead of being in a Latino church, it's in a Vietnamese church. And it kind of looks like the set of 24. There's a lot of clear glass and smooth chromed metal and blue lit electronic yugas. And they joke about how the, bu- the budget's through the roof so they can do all these crazy scenes. And then they run out of money midway through the sequel and have to do a, a hokey chase scene in a, like a go-kart. Um, so, so, the movie has a lot of fun with it, and I enjoyed it and was laughing and, and having a thrilling time at the theater. I think the thing that's sinister is maybe not so much these comic spirits behind the film, because I agree, Dana, there is warmth and heart in this movie, just as there was in the Lego movie. I mean, the relationship between Jonah Hill's Schmidt and Channing Tatum's, some critic called him a meat stick, which I'm going to use instead of the name of the character he plays, Jenko. <laughs> Jenko the meat stick. Um there's warmth in that relationship that's genuine and fun at the core of this movie, and that's part of why it works and all of the meta-commentary doesn't just fall to pieces around the edges of the film. But I guess I feel like the machinery of Hollywood is so cynical at this point, right? It's like, oh, the the original Jump Street reboot did great, so let's do a reboot of the reboot for a sequel. And they maybe it's because they have so much heart, they feel like they have to put this carapace of self-deprecation and acknowledgement about how shoddy the concepts of these films are mm-hmm. that they can then create artful, hilarious stories in. And it just made me wish that Hollywood could just let them make an original film. Maybe maybe that film would be spineless and less fun and, and, and they're brilliant at this and I should just appreciate it. But somehow a self-aware Hollywood that understands how creatively bankrupt it is in terms of what sort of films actually get financed is just depressing and, yes, sinister on some level, even though I had probably more fun at these two movies than I've had at most other movies I've seen this year and I would recommend people see both of them. To me, they're symptoms of a Hollywood that's that's 
disappointing and sad. Julie, you're, you're really channeling Steve. You're, you're channeling the authenticity ghost. 300 episodes in and Julia has, I've turned you into me, Julia. I've succeeded. I can. I don't know what it is about these two in particular. Obviously, usually I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side of this argument. I think it's their sheer virtuosity. I think they're so funny. I yeah. think they're, they're so talented. And to see, I don't know, it's one thing to derive pleasure from you know, the lumbering behemoth of a Michael Bay movie that just is Michael Baying itself into loudness and confusion and, and enjoy that for what it is. But it's another to feel like maybe two of the greatest comic talents in Hollywood at the moment are just subjected to the machine. I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to go like paint an anarchy symbol on the wall <laughs> over here. Rage against the machine, Julie. I'm I'm marginally better at being me than you are at being me. So let me explain <laughs> what it is you're trying to say, which is that there's a the, the sinister quality comes from a parallel between uh, Hollywood trying to forgive its terminal lack of originality by uh, covering it in irony, in a kind of shit-eating and self-conscious irony. There's a parallel between that and a certain kind of young man to whom this movie is supposed to appeal, by the way, who thinks he can get away with absolutely all of his worst qualities of uh, callowness, shallowness, self-centeredness by being funny and self-conscious about them. And some of the superficially best, most entertaining people are extremely funny and self-conscious about their own foibles, over time, you can get you can come to realize, in fact, what they've done is completely forgiven themselves and have begged on an ongoing basis for forgiveness for being sophomoric, like being terminally sophomoric. I, I want to say I stayed for every last minute of this movie and I did laugh reliably every 90 seconds. Well, the closing credit sequence is one of the best parts. So you do, if you see it, have to stay for every minute of the movie. Okay. And Dana, I've talked enough, so I'm going to throw it to you. But I want to, uh, here's my throw. I uh, I really like both of these principal actors. And obviously, you can't hang anything on this movie without hanging it on them. And uh, I enjoy watching both of them. And I, wa- I enjoy watching them uh, both together. What do you think? Well, can we talk about, before you guys go and storm the Bastille and your <laughs> rage against the establishment, about the, uh, the the bromance in this movie and sort of, I mean, the focus of my review was less the movie itself, which I do think is just kind of a fun throwaway and also I don't think is on the level, for example, of the Lego movie in terms of what it's doing with an old genre. But I was interested in this romance bromance between the two male characters that is fairly explicitly and, and in a long-running joke uh, construed as a relationship, as like a romantic relationship, right, between these two cops. They're both straight, but yet the most important relationship they have is their cop partnership and the sort of tragedy, the rom-com tragedy that happens three quarters of the way through the movie is that they're separated from each other. And so the rom-com separation that happens three quarters of the way through the movie and is kind of played for for classic laughs is the separation between the two partners after they have a falling out. And this made me start thinking about the future of this very long-running joke in, you know, straight male comedy or comedy presumably marketed mainly at straight males, which is the we're not gay joke, right? Which if you trace it back to, for example, the 90s was 60% of the jokes on Friends had to do with the straight male roommates making sure that everybody knew they weren't gay. And this kind of joke happens again and again and again in Judd Apatow movies, etc. This movie is largely built around it. And uh, and a lot of critics, including Richard Lawson, who's a gay critic who writes for Vanity Fair, saw this kind of and see have, have seen for years this kind of thread of homophobia running through the bromance. So I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts about that or whether this movie touched more of a nerve in that sense than others have. I think I might have given this movie a pass on that because it seems so intelligent and knowing about 
everything about the fact that it's a sequel, about the subversive acting talent within Channing Tatum's meat stick appeal, about the idea of Jonah Hill as a Lothario, you know, about all of this, that I felt that I gave it some slack for knowingness about the kind of homo erotic homophobic subtext of cop buddy movies stretching back for decades uh it sort of makes that subtext explicit and makes fun of it in a way that seems so 2014 kind of aren't we all on board with gay rights like we can make these jokes and it doesn't there's not actually homophobia animating them there's like homophobia phobia animating them i gave i gave it a lot of slack for that maybe i was giving it too much slack but i sort of felt like it was post post homoerotic movie yeah i guess i mean i'm not so much accusing the movie itself of homophobia which if anything it kind of consciously militates against but just of depending so heavily on that tension and that joke it made me wonder what the future of that joke is because i think those are some of the weaker parts of the movie for example the part where the two cops go to couples therapy together and because of the play on the word partner the therapist sort of assumes that they're romantic partners as they talk about their professional falling out and i just thought that that scene seemed really played out and it made me sort of wonder you know where where is there left for this joke to go yeah, I agree with you, Dana. And they balance that scene. I, I mean, I don't think anyone involved with this movie has a phobic bone in their body. I really believe that. Um, I thought that scene was a little close to a line and maybe even crossed it. Um, what I what I liked about it in this movie is, you know, I, 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 I do think this was kind of the beating heart at the center of this movie, which is that I do think straight men... Uh, who are close friends do love each other. I think it's actually a very deep form of love, and I do think it encompasses enormous can encompass enormous jealousies, and um, uh, and I think the movie, as I said, is just built on the on the rapport between these two. I, I think really gifted uh, performers, and so they they brought an element of truth to that truth in their performance to that truth and therefore i didn't i i I was kind of okay with that as a source of comedy in the movie it didn't seem it didn't seem to cross that line but i'm i'm really sympathetic to the critique i I agree it's just been it's just been killed that that joke yeah i would agree steve the rapport between them is really really nicely done and they're both kind of perfect in these roles but i will say that i've never quite understood the the degree of Jonah Hill's appeal. I think he's fine in a certain kind of role. I actually really liked him a lot in Moneyball and started to think maybe he's moving out of that classic Jonah Hill role. But this really is him sort of back in the classic Jonah Hill role, which is some combination of abrasiveness and neediness. Like, what is the Jonah Hill chemical equation exactly? And it works fine in this movie. He's got a nice chemistry with Channing Tatum. But to me, Channing Tatum is more of a comic discovery than Jonah Hill. I feel like he's just unfolding as an actor, Channing Tatum, and getting sort of funnier and richer with every role. I can't believe there was a day, for example, in Guy to recognizing our saints, which is the first movie I remember seeing him in when I thought Channing Tatum was sort of a, a boring energy suck at the movies. Now I love him. Yeah, I will say that I, I cannot take credit for having spotted his future trajectory when I first saw him in Step Up or whichever Step Up, Step Up movie he debuted in. But you did see him as a great dancer, which is another of his hidden secret talents. He needs to do more musicals and more stripper movies. Well, I swooned hard in, for him in Magic Mike, but I think that was probably late to the uh, dance. Okay, the movie is 22 Jump Street. It stars Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. Uh, It's opening everywhere on the inside of your eyelids. It's probably there at this point. But um, see it. If you see it, come tell us what you thought of it. We're at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia. What do we have? 
That's right, Steve. Our sponsor this week is Audible.com, and Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio entertainment. They offer more than 150,000 audiobooks, which you can play on nearly any device, including whatever you're using to listen to us right now. Audible has a special offer for Culture Gabfest listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up at our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. You can choose your free book from their vast library, including everything from classics to current New York Times bestsellers. And one book we thought might interest you in light of the conversation we're about to have about the state of poetry is Dana. The poetry of Emily Dickinson, as read by the British stage actress Julie Harris on Audible. And Emily Dickinson, I mean, what can you even say about Emily Dickinson? She has created another language within the English language that you can burrow into at any time. Emily Dickinson's complete works are just like this this alternate universe of, of, of beauty and observation and detail and deep thought. There's just, there's nothing she can't do. To me, she's up there with the great writers of the English language, with William Shakespeare, with John Donne. I mean, who else is in the pantheon with Emily Dickinson? She definitely belongs on the bucket list, which is our list of things that you simply must have read in order to be talked to by Steve, and maybe even Dana for this one. I'm not (laughs) sure Dana will talk to you unless you've got Emily Dickinson in, in your genes. I feel like for me, the power of Emily Dickinson lies in her poem about a snake I cannot see a snake or experience a snake without thinking of her poem about the narrow fellow in the grass. She so perfectly captured the experience of encountering all that is otherworldly and alien about a slithering snake that, like, there's no other way to describe it. It's just done. Like, snakes are done. Forget the Bible. Forget the serpent. Like, snakes are over. Emily Dickinson did it. And I'll just read uh, the closing lines of that poem. But never met this fellow, attended or alone, without a tighter breathing and zero at the bone. Now, just imagine Julie Harris was reading that to you, and then your life would be even better. Um, your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give Audible a try today, and please use our URL so Audible knows you're a Culture Gabfest listener. That's audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. Thanks, Julia. All right, well, moving on. Is poetry a just inheritance for all mankind, or is it a coterie art, a preserve for the credentialed and the knowing? It seems we're doomed to have some version of this conversation uh, once every few years. The latest is uh, comes in two related installments. First, a BBC presenter named Jeremy Paxman was asked to judge a prestigious UK poetry prize, and he offered up some choice quotes to the press, including he wished poetry would, quote, raise its game a little bit, raise its sights, and, quote, aim to engage with ordinary people much more. He says that he loves poetry, but he maintains uh, that it's connived at its own irrelevance. And then in the second installment, at least of our discussion of this issue, there is an American poet named Patricia Lockwood who has started to become relevant in exactly the way Paxman is presumably implying poets should. Lockwood's success uh, delights some people. It seems to chagrin others. We'll get to that in a second. But Julia, let me start with you. Do you secretly wish that poetry was more uh, like a song of the summer or a blockbuster movie? Or are you glad that it's a small, a quiet preserve for those who love it? I'm always happy for somebody like Jeremy Paxman to throw a bomb in, into the the insular little hive of poets and say, hey, look at us, talk to us, um, be human in the world. I'm not sure he's right. I'm not sure what form that should take. But I think that in general, the notion that poetry is a subset of the MFA subculture that we've already talked about, which is sort of insular and a bunch of writers talking to each other and working off of each other's notions of what good work is in in this day and age, that poetry operates that way even more exponentially so because there is no 
you know, there, there is no Jonathan Franzen to hold up to the cloistered world of, you know, academic poets, or, or there are very few, right? And and we get a poet, new poet laureate every so often. One was just named last week, Charles Wright. Right. That could be another another cause for our occasion. But, you know, it's it's not like the poet laureates are often household names before they become poet laureate. So it's it's it seems insular. I'd, I'm happy for I'd like for them to have a segment on the nightly news. I don't know. I don't know what form it takes, but I, I, I was applauding the bomb throwing a little bit. There's some strange wording in that Paxman manifesto, including the word inquisition, that poetry requires an inquisition. And I think people were somewhat upset by the vaguely, you know, um, McCarthy-esque sound of of conducting some sort of poetry inquisition. I do not believe that people should, you know, that there should be no implements of torture, no racks. Nobody should be sat down to have a poetry license issued or revoked or anything like that, obviously. But, um, uh, you know, the notion of, like, don't just talk to yourselves and ferret yourself away into a corner, maybe. I don't know. Mm. Right. Well, I, it seems to me there's a production argument and a consumption argument. And let's start with the consumption argument. I was recently reading a uh, quite good biography of the physicist Robert Oppenheimer, and there was this remarkable description of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, which was started, I believe, in the late 40s or early 50s, mostly to aggregate massively talented physicists, but also people from across disciplines. And they had, at one point, I think they had Oppenheimer, and um, I think Oppenheimer ran it uh, in its earliest incarnation, uh, and he brought in Einstein, but also uh, many other minds that really fathomed mysteries that that people had thought for all eternity were completely unsolvable. And the one person they were all afraid to talk to who was there, who literally was the like beautiful girl that no one would ask out on a date— was T.S. Eliot. He sat there so intimidating and looming so large in the imagination of all the early participants in the Institute that literally no one was able to talk to him. He was so terrifying. I think that there ought to be a nostalgia for someone whose gifts are in painting or poetry or theater or any of the old supposedly fine or high arts who looms massively large in the common imagination, even though that person shouldn't be T.S. Eliot. He shouldn't be a crotchety old white anti-Semite, uh, preferably. Um, so the question is, is, is Maya uh, Angelou, who just died, was she, did she loom that large? Would people be afraid? I'd be afraid to approach her, and I admire her. Uh, so then the other question is, well, is on the production side, are there such poets and there isn't a a proper megaphone for them? Or is there something deeper and more structurally true about culture now that we can't possibly elevate someone who writes verse to that um, uh, pinnacle of authority? I mean, those are really hard to answer questions. And also, it, it also should be said that there's a whole other paradigm for being a poet, which is living completely alone and isolated in your own house as the Belle of Amherst did. And the case can be made without even cracking the slightest sweat that Emily Dickinson is every bit the poet, if not the superior poet to T.S. Eliot. So it's it's not as if in order for there to be great poetry, there needs to be uh, a kind of authoritarian centrality uh, to the figure of the poet. Um, so I guess I come out all over the map on this issue. I would love it if there were someone who cut a public figure sort of like Eliot's and was able to pronounce on the state of culture with a degree of serious skepticism and with the perspective of the centuries. I would love that figure to exist. I don't think we need it in order for there to be great poetry uh, blooming in the dark somewhere. Whether that's actually happening, I'm not sure. 
I mean, it seems that poetry has always bloomed in the dark and will continue to do so, and that any attempt to tie it to some sort of civic authority is always going to be tenuous at best, and in the current culture is just really almost a joke. I mean, I was reading a profile of Charles Wright, the new poet laureate who was named last week, who, by the way, sounds like this wonderful man. Talk about the Bell of Amherst. He's just a guy who lives in a shed in the woods somewhere and is like 10 miles from the nearest phone or something. That's how cut off he is from the world, and he's now going to be our poet laureate. But the most telling and chilling detail in this profile of the new poet laureate is, do you know how much the poet laureate is paid by the U.S. government by our tax dollars. It pays $35,000 a year plus a $5,000 travel stipend to be the poet laureate. It's like being an assistant professor. It's like being a lecturer at a university. It just seemed like such an insult. I would almost rather have it be an honorarium of, I don't know, a gold medal or something because it is an insult to be paying this 80-year-old man who's made poetry his life this tiny little stipend. It was just so, so sad. And it just it just seemed to me like a symbol for how our governmental relationship to the arts has, has atrophied. All right. Well, why don't, why don't we move on to the second part of the conversation, which is uh, there's a, a poet named Patricia Lockwood who's very young and very photogenic and very Twitter-friendly, who's becoming uh, enormously, by the standards of poetry, enormously popular. She's recently been profiled in the New York Times magazine, and then uh, the daily critic, book critic for the New York Times, the uh, sublime Dwight Garner, has written about her. Patricia Lockwood's sexy, surreal, and mostly sublime poem seem to have been, as James Joyce said in Ulysses about a batch of folktales, quote, printed by the weird sisters in the year of the big wind, close quote. And then Dwight goes on to say, they scatter lightning and lawn debris across your psyche. Dana, um, Patricia Lockwood is very, very good on Twitter. She has something like 30,000 followers that may have doubled since I last looked. She's also very well known for a, a poem that, of all things, a poem that went viral called uh, Rape Joke. What do you make of her growing celebrity? And what do you make of that poem? I'm very curious to know because I'm not sure I know what I think of either. Well, I mean, I think I feel like I should start the discussion of Trisha Lockwood by saying that I, I can't weigh in on her as a critic talking about all of her poetry. She has, what, two or three books of poems now. I mean, I feel like we're dealing with her here more as a Twitter presence, a kind of media personality, and the the author of Rape Joke, which is this poem that went incredibly viral last summer. Um, there was just a period that everyone was, everyone on my feed anyway, was talking, tweeting, reacting to this poem, Rape Joke, which exists somewhere on the boundaries between, for me, between performance art, searingly satirical stand-up comedy and poetry, right? Because it was sort of, it's, 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 it's a poem that sort of reads, as several of her poems do, that I've read as a series of tweets itself. It's sort of a series of small, oracular pronouncements that is in part confessional about her own rape, something that happened to her when she was 19. Uh, and, and in part, I guess you would say sort of a deconstruction of the national conversation about rape, what we mean when we say rape, what we mean when we say joke, whether it's possible to make a joke. The poem itself is full of jokes. It's a poem that's difficult to read because of the subject matter, but it's also playful and witty in a strange way. And I thought it was an extremely powerful performance. I had actually followed Lockwood on Twitter far before the rape joke poem came out and then stopped following it at a certain point because even though her tweets were sort of masterfully done, and it's definitely true that she's very good at the medium, there was something about them. It's sort of the same as certain stand-up comics that I like a lot. I might really like their comedy, but there's something about that Patricia Lockwood feeling that was just very intense to have coming at you as often as it was coming at you. It was just too much of of these very dense, gem-like oracular pronouncements. And there was something about it that felt a little bit gimmicky to me. 
the poem rape joke, on the other hand, seemed like it just it just burst the boundaries of something. I really sort of respected what it did with the medium of Twitter. And it made me, although it didn't necessarily make me want to follow her because I'm not sure I do need those doses of intensity every few minutes throughout the day. It did make me want to explore her books of poetry more, and especially Dwight Garner's Valentine of a Review. I mean, he, he seemed profoundly moved and touched by that book, and it made me want to take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. And, and and by the way, the, the, that poem is an incredible performance, and just send it right up George Will's nose as far as I'm concerned. But Julia, this has obviously become a very gendered discussion, not our discussion, but the discussion online about Patricia Lockwood. Um, A lot of the people writing uh, somewhat hesitant and potentially critical assessments of her appear to be men. There are a lot of women chiming in, critics, women critics chiming in, defending her and pointing out how male critics deprive writerly authority, women of writerly authority. Uh, Where do you fall on this Patricia Lockwood subject? Well, I mean, I think if we if we circle this back around to the Paxman point, I think it's only been good for poetry for there to be like a national conversation around Patricia Lockwood. I think some of it has gotten a bit heated that three of the most prominent reviews of the book were written by men. There was one in the New Yorker on the New Yorker's website that did seem a little bit condescending uh, and and somewhat mansplainy that sort of said, oh, I'm concerned that Twitter maybe dampening Patricia Lockwood's, cheapening Patricia Lockwood's poetry. Perhaps she's gotten too used to the gimmick punchline call and response of Twitter and, and the poetry is less complex perhaps than her early more obscure work. I think there are legitimate beefs with that particular review. I think then there were a couple critics, including Mallory Ortberg, whose work I love on the toast, who said like, how come it's all men reviewing this book? I found that that conversation didn't seem like a particularly useful lens through which to view this work. I mean, I think there is something about poetry. I think it comes back to the central question. Here's a woman who's performing poetry very publicly, who's doing it in an unexpected forum, who makes the explicit subject of her work sex, with which both attracts interest, right? It's more fun to read a poem about sex than it is maybe to read a poem about, like, the abstract nature of being. I think some of her poems are about both, but... Um, there are ways in which people discount the publicness of her work, the popularity of her work, and the subject matter of her work, and perhaps do some of that because she's a woman doing all of this and not like, uh, you know, perhaps if it were a man doing similar work, he would just be getting accolades for breaking boundaries. But I, I think it's been good for poetry that there's been this conversation about her work and a set of people who want to engage with it. And I felt... I think one thing that comes across in those reviews is that her work makes people uncomfortable because of the explicit sexuality, because she is so reader-focused and so good at kind of pushing particular buttons and anticipating and short-circuiting responses. I mean, in some ways, she's she's a poet who has a lot in keeping with um, the creators of 22 Jump Street, who's so aware of the way in which you are going to receive her work that she's sort of manipulating and commenting on that as she produces it, which which can get under your skin a bit and wig you out. But I think that's basically a testament to the power of her writing and whether it fits as classically poetry, quote unquote, or whether she's creating some new medium online that, that borrows from the tradition of poetry and is actually transforming it into something slightly new. I think it's going to be exciting to follow her work. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, her latest collection is uh, Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland, Sexuals. I'm very curious to know what listeners of ours make of her work. Come tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. 
When Stephen Colbert devotes an entire show to satirizing the competition for the Song of Summer of the Century, the very idea of one song to rule them all between Memorial Day and Labor Day has reached a certain status, so writes the wonderful Chris Malamphy in Slate magazine. He goes on to say it's become both an American tradition and something so overhyped it's worth questioning. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? Not bad. Chris, but let's be, let's begin with the sort of platonic concept, um, and then we'll uh, force specifics to conform to it. But what did your research tell you? What is a song of summer? Is it a legit concept even to begin with? I found myself defending the concept of the Song of Summer when I wrote that piece for Slate at the end of last summer because the whole premise for it started when uh, Chuck Eddy, who's a pretty well-known uh, music critic, uh, came on social media and said to me, Chris, is, social, is a Song of Summer even a thing? Um, because it seems to me that there are many songs of the summer and why should there be just one? And, you know, why do we turn it into this grudge match? And uh, what my research showed was that if you go back as far back as, say, the 60s, there were artists who were pretty self-consciously trying to create a song of the summer. I mean, probably the most well-known one from the 60s is Summer in the City by The Love and Spoonful. It came out in July. It spent three weeks at number one. It spent more weeks at number one than any other song in the summer of 66. And it was pretty clearly the song of the summer. Um, what my research also turned up, though, is that the hype around Song of Summer is a fairly new thing. Like, if you do a Nexus search, there's not a whole lot of grudge match Song of the Summer stuff, certainly before the 90s. Um, there's like a couple of quick mentions. And then you start to turn up these articles in the 90s. Uh, Ann Powers did one. Uh, Stephen Talty in the New York Times Magazine did one in 1995, where they're sort of positing that, you know, during the summer, this is much like Hollywood movie season, where the big hits come to play, come to battle it out. And... Uh, now in the, you know, sort of blogging and social media era, everybody seems to have an opinion on this. And it's it's kind of snowballed. And I noticed that year after year, the Song of Summer meme, it, it appears in newspapers earlier. It, it's covered by more people. And for the piece we're about to talk about now, one of the reasons I did this in a slightly different way this year uh, was I sort of felt like, well, we don't need to make, you know, just a simple predictions article. That's been done. Time Magazine did one. Uh, you know, Gawker did one. Everybody's done that. So why don't we talk about, you know, what your song of the summer is? So that, that's, uh, that's where we uh, came at it. Right. And we should describe a little bit what you did for Slate this year, Chris, which is basically create a Song of Summer contest where you go in and select which of the four top contenders for Song of Summer for, I think, the past five years and then each five years back before that, back to the early 80s. Right. Um, you sort of say, did you were you more of a Call Me Maybe person or were you... What was one of the other ones that summer? Uh, that year would have been Call Me Maybe versus somebody that I used to know by oh, Gautier right. versus... Was that 2012? Yeah. Yeah, anyway. So. Right. So you, you sort of pick which was your choice from the few recent summers, and then it spits out what's going to be your song for this summer. So I like it sort of acknowledged that in the fractured marketplace, there are multiple contenders and, and we'll all have multiple favorites instead of perhaps one true king. Right. And I think what also kind of made the concept snowball just in the last, say, three or four years is that there's been a pretty clear hit you over the head song of the summer for at least the last, I don't know, three or four years. Like, you know, when Call Me Maybe dominated the summer of 2012, I don't think anybody argued that that was it, you know, or last year we had this two song battle and everybody seemed to pick sides. It turned into this Beatles versus Stones, Coke versus Pepsi. It was thing. Get Lucky versus Blurred Lines. It was right? Get Lucky versus Blurred Lines. And it was a beautiful story because Pharrell was backing both of them. So everybody was joking, well, whatever song wins, Pharrell wins. And, um, so it, it's kind of snowballed just in the last few years. Everybody seems to have an opinion now. 
All right. Well, do you want to walk us through some of your selections? Because I took the quiz and right. I got Fancy uh-huh. uh, by Iggy Azalea featuring... Uh, featuring um, Charlie XCX, who is kind of an MVP of Songs of Summer because she also supported uh, Icona Pop's uh, I Love It last year, which was a lot of people's Song of the Summer last year. Right. So let's listen to a clip from Fancy. First things first, I'm the realest. realest. Drop this and let the whole world feel it. Let them feel it. And I'm still in the murder business. I can hold you down like I'm giving lessons in physics. Right, right. right. You should want a bad bitch like this. Huh? Drop it low and pick it up just like this. Yeah. Cup of ace, cup of goose, cup of Chris. I heal something worth a half a ticket on my wrist. Back. On my wrist. Taking all the liquor straight. Never chase that. Never. Stop like we bring an 88 back. What? Bring the hook scene where the bass at. Champagne spilling, you should taste that. All right, so this song's been in my head since it was pointed out to me by your generator. Tell us why this is a contender. I mean, first of all, it, it may wind up winning the whole ball of wax because it's already number one and it's been number one for about a month. And uh, it seems like an unlikely hit when you describe it to somebody because it's, you know, a white female Australian rapper who has learned to rap like a Southern African-American, really male rapper because her, her model is T.I., who's her mentor. But it's got that Charlie XCX hook, which, uh, as I may have noted before, you know, she's kind of uh, a, a genius at uh, these uh, great summer pop hooks. She uh, sang the hook on uh, I Love It by Akona Pop last year. That uh, that thumping beat that it's got, it's it's kind of um, uh, an electro beat, so not uh, your typical sort of hip-hop break beat. And uh, I can speak from my own experience that on the street I live in uh, in Brooklyn, um, somebody was thumping that thing over and over again, and just the sound of that thump, it's almost like it was made for booming out of a Jeep. Um, so uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that it's kind of taken off uh, as the temperature's gotten warmer. Dana or Steve, did you get that song? No, my result was actually the song that was going to be one of my favorites from the, the lineup we were looking at anyway, which was Do It Again by Robin and oh, Royce Cop. Yeah. And I think one of the things that appealed to me about Do It Again is that it has a very similar kind of lyrical content and a sense of romantic yearning as Hang With Me, which was one of my favorite um, of our summer strut list, another Robin song from from a few summers ago. It has that same summer romance kind of theme of like, this is going to be horribly painful, but let's do it anyway again and again. She's kind of the queen of the, this is going to be horribly painful. Yeah, but. it's like the masochism <laughs> in the club, you know. <laughs> totally. <laughs> let's yeah. listen to a clip. I just want to dance on a beach to that song. Right. It's pretty irresistible. What's crazy about Robin is that, like, her hit-making days, she started out in the late 90s as, like, part of the teen pop boom of Backstreet and Britney, and she was promoted that way. She actually had top 10 hits here in America. And then she kind of went back to Sweden and was woodshedding and has kind of emerged as this indie pop goddess in the last five to 10 years. So, like, this song is definitely sort of, let's call it a hipster summer hit, but it's not, like, on Top 40 radio. Frankly, it totally deserves to be. It's it's really catchy and really good. But... um yeah, it, it, she's she's almost uh, 
going deeper lyrically as uh, she's gone on and uh, and uh, has become more an object of critical acclaim than uh, than top forty you know pop rotation. Steve, I, I think you that... have to speak. Have you? Did you pick out any favorites? Did you do the quiz? Okay, well you're all on the edge of your seat, so I'll, I'll let you know what the song of summer is going to be. Um, I inputted all of my summer jiggy into the generator, and I got. Um, Franz Schubert's Die Schöne Müller, <laughs> which I think for sheer ubiquity factor is a, is just a shoe-in, and it's already thumping on my block in Ghent, New York, out of the pickup trucks. So um, You actually managed to hack the bot. I'm very impressed, Steve. And it just, it, I should say also, it was, a, it was very much like uh, uh, last year's competition. It went down to the wire with some of the settee gym, gymnopede. But um, anyway, ha, ha, ha. Funny stuff. Um I'm going to go with the Robin. I actually I actually didn't do the online song generator. I forgot to do my homework, but I like that Robin song and I'm going to throw I'm the I'm part of the, you know, a certain crowd that's going to um push for that to um become the the juggernaut. Are there any other tracks that you, that were part of the Summer Song Generator that you think we're, we'd be remiss not to discuss and share with our listeners here? Okay, so I, I mean, I have two favorites myself, one of which is a pretty big hit and is, is kind of an unlikely hit, and one of which should be a big hit and is not. I would say my two favorites are uh, a song by Nico and Vins called Am I Wrong? These guys are really interesting. They are a duo from Norway, and they... Uh, you got Steve right there. Yeah. <laughs> duo from Norway, and they kind of have this airy, ethereal pop sound, uh, very widescreen, um, almost African. They've, they've spoken in interviews about how they were going for little African elements. There's a little hook that comes around the chorus where they go, yeah, 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 that they totally uh, cop to taking from Ethiopian recordings that they've heard. And it just has this kind of, you know, as I said, cinematic uh, sound to it that I really like. And it sounds fantastic. Again, to talk about context, it sounds fantastic coming out of a radio. Um, radio people almost love it more than, you know, people buying songs, although it's selling pretty well as well, uh, because it just, it, it flows really nicely on the radio and it's, it's got this great sound. So I think when I took the quiz, I got Nico and Vins. Let's listen to that. Oh my gosh, that just sounds like a police song. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a good police song. I you're, like that one. Not, yeah, no, you're not the first person to point that out. Which, by the way, just briefly, is like a meme lately. Like, this makes the third year in a row that a song that vaguely sounds like The Police has been a big hit. Like, you had somebody that I used to know, which everybody said sounded like Sting a couple of years ago. You had uh, this Bruno Mars song last year called uh, Locked Out of Heaven, which completely sounded like a police song. So much so that at the Grammys, they brought Sting out to sing it with Bruno Mars. And now you've got this record that also sounds indebted to The Police. So, it, yeah, it's, it's become a thing. Um, the other record that's on the list that I love and um, is probably my favorite out of all of them uh, is uh, Usher's Good Kisser. This is a contender for me for just a, you know, a song that I'll put in my top five for the year at the end of the year. And what's crazy is it's doing well on R&B radio. It is not crossing over very well on the pop charts. It's, it's like in the 70s on the Hot 100 right now, which I think is sort of insane. Um, but it's got this really cool 
uh, seductive sound, but it's it's also it's both kind of a you know bit of a slow jam, but with uh, a really interesting beat. It kind of is built around a repeating drum fill and uh, and Usher's unleashing this falsetto. Uh, what's kind of crazy is that Usher in his quote unquote old age, I think he's in his mid 30s, is kind of doing what Robin's doing, a, a hit maker from the late 90s, early 2000s, who's starting to become more of a, a critically acclaimed acquired taste rather than a hit maker. But I, I think this is an excellent record. <laughs> The devil is a lie. Them other girls can't compete with mine. You do it so good, you blew my mind. You pull it out, then you open by. You make me want to tap out every time. Your pretty lips leave me so inspired. I, I, I think that she a winner. She could be a keeper. Cause she's such a good a summer jam. That's the song that comes on after the barbecue when somebody stayed behind to see if they can get with the host. Fair point. No <laughs> argument there. I An important part of summer. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what isn't more important? Like, what happens after the party? Seriously. <laughs> um. All right. Well, everyone listening to us, go to Slate and take this interactive quiz that Chris Melanthi has designed in order to find your perfect song of the summer. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. As always, a total pleasure. Thank you very much, Steve. It was a pleasure for me, too. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show where we endorse. Uh, Dana, what do you have? Well, since we were talking about poetry this week, which is such a rare treat, I love when we talk about poetry on the show or read it, uh, I wanted to recommend a poet this week, um, a young female poet, probably in her 30s, who has three books. Her name is Brenda Shaughnessy, and uh, she's someone I know very slightly from my Berkeley days because she studied at Berkeley, but uh, who mainly I know through her work, and she's just an incredible, incredible poet. Uh, Her poetry appears here and there, but it's been collected in three collections, three books. Her first is called Interior with Sudden Joy. The second is called Human Dark with Sugar, and one that I didn't know about, she now has a newish one called Our Andromeda. So I recommend anything by Brenda Shaughnessy. And if you get a chance to ever go or hear read in person, she's she's fabulous. What sort of what's her work like? It's fairly languagey and tricky, but it's accessible. It's it's a person who loves um, sensual images and metaphor. Um, there's a lot of lesbian love in there, although I think she is now married to a man and has a child. But there's a lot of sort of pansexual floatiness. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. But um, but she has certain images. She has a wonderful poem in her first book called uh, Your One Good Dress that's all about how every woman needs one dress that can do anything for her and her descriptions of what this dress does to sort of change the, the life and persona of the person wearing it is, is really beautiful. And I think of it whenever I, I find a great dress. Is this going to be my one good Brenda Shaughnessy oh dress? Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. I am so sold. Anybody who can write intelligently about the way women relate to clothes, there's not enough of that in the world. Uh, yes, I'd like to just say I'd like two scoops of ice cream in my pansexual float. <laughs> um, Julia, what do you have? I also have a poetry-related endorsement. I'm going to endorse poetry, not the genre, but the magazine. I had the occasion to um, look over several recent issues of poetry recently, and 
it is such a good magazine. If you think of yourself as someone who loves poetry or loves studying poetry at any point in your academic career but doesn't have a great way to relate to it now or aren't really quite sure where to find poetry or incorporate it into your life, go right now and subscribe to poetry. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to it. It is such an intelligently constructed magazine. And it's incredibly admirable because the the foundation that runs it got this enormous grant, right, from, from Joan Crock. I think it was like 10 years ago now, gajillions of dollars to put toward poetry. And the temptation with that much money would be to like trick it out, blow it up, do some kind of like multimedia hullabaloo with a, with an interactive app and whatnot. And it's incredibly restrained, perhaps as befits the genre, but so intelligently curated. There's interesting poems. There's interesting ancillary work around the poems, interviews with authors. There's sort of thematic collections, poetry that, that children might enjoy, poetry not written for children that children might enjoy was one recent theme issue. That book by Eliza Griswold, Collecting the Land Days from Afghanistan, which I endorsed a couple months ago, was initially collected in a special issue of, of Poetry Magazine. It really, like, you should be subscribing to poetry. If you've ever loved poetry, you should be subscribing to this magazine now. It's at the top of its game. Ah, Julia, I want to just congratulate you because 300 episodes into the show, you have finally passed the Turing test. <laughs> Wait, are you you're convinced I'm human? You're recognizably human now, <laughs> to me at least. Between canvassing for authenticity in 22 Jump Street and endorsing a poetry magazine, Julia is on Steve's <laughs> love list today. <laughs> okay, well, really briefly, I'm going to uh, heartily endorse the Jill Lepore piece in the current New Yorker magazine. It's called The Disruption Machine, What the Gospel of Innovation Gets Wrong. And it's a wonderful and uh, uh, empirically driven, in some ways also morally driven, exploration of the whole notion of disruption in, in business. The, it's a overwhelmingly omnipresent meme in the business world, especially the tech world right now, that, that there are large, lumbering, uh, slow-to-adapt companies that whose lunch is about to get eaten on a constant basis by small, nimble, disruptive technologies. It turns out this cliche is completely false, and that if you actually examine the people who've evangelized, uh, the evidence marshaled by the people who evangelize on its behalf, um, they get that evidence completely wrong. In fact, um, this is not principally how innovation or business success happens, uh, even in American culture. And so what it really turns out to be, as Lepore points out, is an ideological meme and not an economic or financial or business-centered uh, uh, meme. And she's done, I mean, I really mean this, I think she's done an incredible service via her own intellectual labor to debunk this. And 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 debunk she did. It's not a, it's not a moralizing or hectoring piece. She doesn't get up on her high horse and say it shouldn't be a commanding metaphor. She says, actually, it, it, actually, it's it's wrong. It's actually on the facts wrong that this is how the cycle of business health unfolds. So anyway, highly recommended. It's a great piece. Can we just shout out Jill Lepore? Is there ever an issue of New Yorker these days that doesn't have a terrific Jill Lepore article in it? I feel like <laughs> that woman is like the one woman machine of the New Yorker. It's, it's awesome. A very admirable byline. I totally agree. Uh, anyway, Dana, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Julia, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. Totally. How does it feel being human? I knew it. I knew it. Does not compute. Fuck. Does not compute. <laughs> Humanity revoked. <laughs> 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you next week. Ich frage kein